And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is Monday of Thanksgiving week. This is going to be our only episode this week because of the holiday. And Bruce, for your sideline game this week, tell people where you're going to be and just how awkward that might be. Yeah, so this week I have got Texas hosting TCU. I have, uh, this is the third time in the last four games I'll have done a Texas game. The game I didn't get to do was this past weekend when they lost at Kansas. And obviously uh, the drama around the Texas athletic program and certainly around Charlie Strong is at an all-time high. You know, as we tape this podcast, Charlie Strong just had his Monday press conference and uh, there's a lot to get into. So let me ask you this. What was your first observation from hearing him speak today or just about what's going on there? Well, you know, we've spent we got that email last week kind of mocking us for always talking about the Texas job and Charlie Strong and Tom Herman. And then bef- that was before two events. One, Tom Herman, Houston destroys Louisville. That listener is going to have to sit this podcast out yeah. and back in a, in a couple episodes. In this past week, it went from being a speculative thing to legit news. I mean, when Tom Herman did what he did against Louisville, uh, you immediately saw the reports the next day that the boosters are pressuring Texas to go ahead and make a change. And at that time, there was still some thought that he could save his job by winning the last two, though I didn't think that would be the case. And then you know, basically there's no decision now. They lost to Kansas. All hope is gone. And I'm just a little um, disappointed in the way Greg Fenvis, the president, and Mike Perrin, the AD, are handling this. Now, to be fair, on our Facebook Live show Saturday night, as you know, we were talking about this kind of in the immediate aftermath, we both, we both suggested that this is exactly what would happen, that they wouldn't fire him before the TCU game. But I don't think it had hit me then. It's not like everything just stands still in between. So we already have had eight gazillion reports that he's been fired but everybody's insisting that that hasn't happened yet. And so I think this is almost worse. So you're right. There's not necessarily a, a right way to do this. But what would be, like you said, I mean, these these players are just feeling the brunt of it, the pressure. They feel like they are or not costing him the job. So if they had gone ahead and just taken the mystery out of it, I feel like then, you know, he would have coached the TCU game anyway. It would have been his senior day. It would be a send off for him. You know, the pressure has gone. Now, if if we are taking them at face value, and Charlie Strong said repeatedly at his press conference, he met with Mike Perrin. They said no decisions until after the TCU game. It's another week, albeit a short week, of guys, you know, I just feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders over something that at this point is inevitable because, I mean, I tweeted this, and I, you, I'm sure you agree. Texas could go out and win this game 50 to nothing. It's not going to change Charlie Strong's fate. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think it would, and that's where we are with this. But 
you know, I think what you have is, you know, the leadership there said, hey, we're going to we're going to not going to do anything till after the season. I think they're trying to stick to it. I mean, I think that was the message from what I was told, you know, weeks ago. And I think they're trying to honor that. And, you know, I, I think it's easy to throw stones. I will say this, too. And I, this is something that struck me as I watched that press conference amid, like you said, all the reports. And I can speak on my own personal experiences of stuff I'd reported last year, as well as I'm sure you and I have said things that, you know, weren't always the most favorable about, let's be honest. I mean, they weren't winning on the field enough. Um, but I thought his, his handling of it in the face of, you know, he's answering some of these reporters who basically said, you're, you know, he's dead man walking on the job. Um, I thought was very commendable and, and above and beyond just being a very professional. Sometimes people come on our podcast to get a, a sense of what it's like inside the ropes a little bit. Uh, of how we do the job. I know that's a golf term, but I'll use it here. Um, I think this is an example of it where uh, a lot of other coaches I've seen, and it's somewhat, I think it's human nature, don't, aren't exactly so gracious when people, you know, maybe made their lives harder, made their jobs harder by what we report. And I'm not saying it's not true. That's part of the job. But again, I think it's human nature where some, sometimes there's some pushback on it. And if you watch Charlie Strong, there was none of that. And as far as I know, in all my experiences, there's been none of that. And he's going to make $10.7 million. He's already made a lot of money. So it's not like he's got a bad lot in life through this. But I do have a lot of respect and admiration for how he's handled it because I've seen other, other folks who didn't handle it so graciously. So let's turn the page. Uh, he's gone. Tom Herman, to me, it's a no-brainer. They're going to offer him the job and he's going to accept it. Am I missing any other scenario? You know, the only thing I could see that could make it maybe a more of a uh, complex issue is if Jimbo Fisher, you know, somebody had told me this and I would, this did come from somebody within the coaching world, but I'm not sure if it's, I don't know if the agenda where it is on this, but had told me, well, I'm not sure how much Jimbo loves the AD he has at Florida State. And, I, and it wasn't as it relates to LSU because the feeling was, I don't know if he has a lot of faith in, in Joe Oliva at LSU. Would he look at Texas and be intrigued by that? Because if you'd think about it, Texas to me, we, you know, they're loaded with good young players, freshmen and sophomores. The Big 12 is much more winnable than a, a division that has Nick Saban in it. So if you're Jimbo Fisher, and I don't know if Texas would love him either and be all in, whereas Tom Herman's was a grad assistant there. He spent most of his career as a coach in Texas. Um, would Jimbo Fisher possibly be more intrigued by Texas over LSU? Um, I don't know. Is that something Texas would want to kick the tires on again? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. We should get into Jimbo because given LSU's last second loss to Florida, where they couldn't punch it in from one yard out, uh, the general consensus out there now is that even if LSU beats A&M, Coach O, unfortunately, in my opinion, is not going to get the job. And Jimbo Fisher is considered the, you know, if they, I guess Herman too, but Jimbo Fisher is considered the top target. Joe Oliva has wanted him since last year. But let's back up a second. How realistic is it, do you think, that he would leave Florida State, period? I don't know. I've wondered that myself because, first of all, he's got a good situation. He's got a very talented young team. Um, the part I wonder about also is, and I I don't know who has a great answer for this other than Jimbo, would be he's got young kids or relatively young kids and coming out of, I don't want to get into too much of his personal business, but obviously he had a very public split. And you know how would that affect 
his his family going forward if he left Tallahassee? I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe there's people who cover him who know it better than me. Yeah, I mean, it's you generally try to stay out of the personal life aspect. But yeah, I mean, if you're talking about possibly moving to Louisiana and you've just gotten through a divorce and there are young kids involved, I don't I don't know how that I mean, it's not. I don't think we generally look at these guys, you know, it's kind of like they're just commodities that you trade from one place to the next. And of course, they're uh, human beings with families and uh, you just don't know how that's going to impact it. So that is obviously a big factor. It's just one that I don't really we can necessarily try to predict or break down. Um, you know, I think that he has always had an affinity for LSU and the SEC and while Florida State, you know, you and I and most people view it as, and going back to the Bobby Bowden heyday, you know, one of the most renowned programs nationally. You know, people around the country know Florida State. They won a national title three years ago. But people would be surprised they don't have nearly as rabid a fan support as an LSU. Um, filling, selling out the stadium is not necessarily a given in Tallahassee. The facilities are very good. I don't think they're quite at the level of the top of the SEC. But it's not chain. keeping them back, you know. No, I, mean, I don't think anything. Neither is you know what. Neither is not having quite capacity crowds. I mean, look, if that was the case, Tennessee would still be winning championships. Right. So might not influence his thinking at all. But I'm just saying, people who would say, "Well, why? Why? You know, how is that possible?" In fact, didn't we get a question on the podcast a while back? about why he's even never mentioned for these things. Nobody would ever speculate that the coach of Alabama might be looking at another job or the coach at one of these top-tier programs, Ohio State, would be up for another college job. And I'm just saying that there is that little aspect to it. You know, I think the interesting thing is, let's say uh, LSU definitely doesn't bring back Coach O. Tom Herman decides to go to Texas. And Jimbo Fisher decides to stay at Florida State. At that point, I don't know that there's an obvious home run guy that makes sense for LSU. No, I, I've wondered that for a while, too. You know, like I just did Oklahoma State's game, and, and Mike Gundy and, and Oklahoma State look very good dominating at TCU. And he was a name that I would look at as a fallback candidate, along with Larry Fedora, who I think Larry Fedora at North Carolina is also a candidate at Baylor. But... This might be a great time for Mike Gundy to make a move, and he has tried before. He has tried to get other jobs. Okay, but if you are LSU, are you that sure that Mike Gundy is the guy who's going to put you on over the top? If they do that, they'd be hiring two straight Oklahoma State coaches. That is true. He's a good coach. He's gotten a lot done there. If they beat Oklahoma uh, in two weeks and win the Big 12 championship, you know, you're talking about a program that at that point would have done that what, twice in five years. Uh, in 2011, they almost played LSU for the national championship. You know, I think I think that's a really solid hire. If LSU looks at him that favorably, he's such a, a, a quirky guy with that mullet, which you saw firsthand the other night. Hey, Les uh, is a quirky yeah. guy too, by the way. True, true. They're pretty uh, much all quirky guys still. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've talked about that, how Mark Helfrich might be just be too too normal to be a, a great head coach. So, you know, Gundy would make sense. I, I think what I was saying, though, from more from the Gundy perspective, I don't think he gets along with AD. The Boone Pickens element, while causing him to make a lot of money, can also be really annoying. It seems like every year we hear a story about how they are or are not talking again. If they win the Big 12, this would be a really opportune time for him to make a move. 
Yeah, I hear you. I mean, look, they do have great, uh, they have terrific facilities. And I just don't know, again, I just don't know from the LSU side, you're looking at it and going, okay, this is definitely, we're zeroing in on this. Now, I think it's very possible. But again, I don't know. When I was at the game this weekend, I did hear from somebody saying that there was, and this is booster interest from LSU. I don't know how much connected it is to Joe Leva's search, but there would be some interest in Dana Holgerson. Um, now, they're, if they're looking for a, a, a brilliant offensive mind, Dana Holgerson would fit in that category. I think Dana Holgerson would actually be embraced pretty big by the LSU culture and his personality. But you just said, how could you be convinced Mike Gundy would be the one to put you over the top? At least Mike Gundy has won a Big 12 championship. Holgerson, you know, had the opportunity the other night and it blew up in their face pretty badly. It did. It did. But I would say this, Mike Gundy's in a much bigger job resource-wise at Oklahoma State than Dana Holgerson is at West Virginia. I mean, I don't think you can compare the two. They're not the same resource-wise. They don't. When you look at their personnel, they don't just don't look the same as in terms of talent base either. So, I don't know. We'll see. You know, to me, Tom Herman going from Houston to Texas, I think would be close to a home run hire for Texas. I'm not sure there is a home run hire for LSU unless you say, "Hey, Chip Kelly's getting fired at uh, at, the, at the 49ers." We want we want a great offensive mind. How, why don't you come down here? Um, then I think that might I would think that's a home run hire. Speaking of Tom Herman, we haven't had a chance to weigh in on what happened last Thursday, and I want to just broach that real quickly because this was, uh, you know, one of the most stunning results of the whole season. You're talking about Louisville and Lamar Jackson. Nobody had stopped that offense really all season. Virginia came close, I suppose you could say. Even in the Clemson game, Lamar Jackson put up huge numbers. And Houston, this group of five team, a team that lost to SMU earlier in the season, as dominant a defensive performance as you could ask for, and in particular Ed Oliver, who we've talked about on here before, true freshman defensive tackle at a position where oftentimes, I would say most of the time, you know, you guys need a couple years to build their bodies and develop before they can be an impact interior defensive lineman. Ed Oliver dominated that game to the point where I put him in my Heisman top five this week. And our friend David Bassetti, who's the SID at Houston, put together a chart. And you wouldn't even think this is possible. But just from a pure stats uh, perspective, his stats on the season are almost identical to Ndamukong Sue's from the year he was a Heisman finalist. And this guy is 18 years old. Well, I think what, you know, what would be the counter to an argument I think you would get if you'd make that? Somebody would say, oh, well, he's in the AAC. But look what he's done when he has played teams that are top 10, top 15 teams when it's Oklahoma and obviously Louisville the other night. I mean, he's been better in those games than he was in just the games against your average AAC opponent. So so has Houston in general. They've yeah. saved their two best. I mean, they really did have their two best performances of the season against those teams. It almost makes you wonder if they were just bored in conference play. Now, Navy's a really good team, and I think Navy just flat out beat them. And that's that, but I think there's no excuse for the SMS in the media quite a bit. And this came up a lot. I talked to somebody uh, in the Houston program on Thursday who made this point. We are very fresh and healthy right now, with the exception of our quarterback, who's all banged up. And he's been banged up most of the year, Greg Ward. But I think that gets overlooked by us a lot in the media is, you know, how healthy teams are down the stretch. And 
you know, I think that can make a big difference. And I think you saw that. By the way, you know, we're doing a big uh, glove fest on Ed Oliver. Steven Taylor, number 41, is a fantastic linebacker and has been for a while. And anybody who watches Houston regularly probably knows that. But just, I mean, man, they're really good on defense. And he is a huge reason why. Uh, this team is more than just the freshman defensive linemen we all rave about. And especially on all three levels, they got athletes. I mean, they do, they look like a real team. They look like a real top 25 team. I know they stumbled earlier, but, um, you know, I think they're legit. I'm actually curious to see, not that this is going to impact anything, where the committee ranks them this week. And I assume they will rank them because yeah, on the one hand, they beat, uh, a team, Oklahoma and Louisville, who are ranked fifth and ninth, respectively, in the committee rankings last week. Oklahoma will probably be moving up. Obviously, Louisville will be moving down. But does the two losses to unranked teams, although I guess it's possible Navy could join their top 25 this week. And more than that, just their overall strength of schedule is not, you know, it's a group of five strength of schedule. It's not going to be close to other teams. So they could be anywhere. I mean, if you, they could come on Tuesday and say they're 22nd. They could come on and say they're 14th. I really have no idea where they'll be ranked, but because they're not going to win their conference, they're not going to be in a New Year's Six berth. How many losses does Oklahoma have? Oklahoma has two losses, just like Houston. Correct. How many top 10 wins does, does Oklahoma have? Zero. How many does Houston have? Two. Hmm. So you're suggesting that Houston should be ahead of Oklahoma? I'm not suggesting it. I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, there's a perfectly reasonable argument that they should be if we're if we're holding, you know, as of last week, that Clemson had to stay above Louisville. Uh, you know, you and I are both agree that even if Ohio State loses this week, they should stay ahead of Oklahoma. Um, there's a perfectly reasonable argument for that, but the argument against it would be they lost to SMU, and SMU is not very good. No, no, no. I mean, that's that's fair, but you know, other teams have bad losses. By the way, Navy's as you said, Navy is not a bad team to lose to, and also. Oklahoma got absolutely drilled at home by Ohio State. So, Jeff Sagarin, strength of schedule rankings. I don't care o- about Oklahoma. Jeff Oklahoma is 17th and Houston is 80th. I mean, I'm just saying you can single out those couple games and say, oh, this I would is should be ahead of Oklahoma. Out, single out the games and who you play rather than you give me some Jeff Sagarin BS math. Okay, well, forget the actual numbers. I don't think you could dispute that there's a big difference between a Big 12 schedule and an AAC schedule. Look, I give Oklahoma credit for scheduling Ohio State, but also I give credit for Houston to schedule who they did in the non-conference. And they they beat Oklahoma, and they crushed Louisville. They didn't just beat them. They beat the shit out of them. I mean, There we go. Sorry. $5 look, in the swear jar. I say this, you know, I had Oklahoma, I think, ninth or 10th in my poll this week. Um, and I did that on the plane. I started thinking about it on Sunday. I was like, wait a minute, where would I have Houston? Because it's almost like they were so far off the radar. But then you start thinking about it. Um, yeah, I think they have one bad loss. It's SMU. They have another b- loss, which I don't think is a bad one. Um, I don't know. Like I said, they could show up just about anywhere. If the committee decides to take your strategy and say we're they're going from unranked all the way up to eighth ahead of Oklahoma – then they would be right back alive for a New Year's Six birth. They can't win their conference, so they can't get the automatic group of five birth. But, hey, if you finish high enough, you could get the at-large birth that right now I'm projecting to go to Penn State or uh, actually possibly USC, uh, depending on how high they jump. So can you be the arbiter of your Mr. Playoff uh, committee guy? Um, if I said, who do you think should be ranked higher? 
the two lost team that's Oklahoma or the two lost team that beat Oklahoma that's Houston who where do you how would you have them if you were judging them off that one game you would put Houston higher but I, if you're judging them over their whole body of work you'd have Oklahoma higher so you would have Oklahoma higher mhm okay because i don't think you can ignore selective result you can't say i'm going to throw out the other 10 games Houston played and judge them off these two so if you're judging them off the two great wins, you could maybe say they should be in the mix for the playoff. They have demonstrated that they can play with the big boys and beat the big boys. But at the end of the day, you've got to evaluate what they did over the whole course of the season. And for a good chunk of the season, not only did they lose to those two AAC teams, they weren't really dominating in the other games. Let me help you with this, Stu, okay? And, and let me see if I can have you come around. I'm talking right now. I'm not going to talk. If Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State, I will think differently. But right now, here's I'm going to roll it to you, and, and you, you tell me if you still feel this way. Okay, so they lost by 10 points to Houston. We know that. Then they played Louisiana Moreau. They stink. They won that. Then they lost by three touchdowns at home to Ohio State. Now, here's where the wins. So they beat TCU on the road by six. TCU is five and five. They're not a very good team. Then they beat Texas, who's also not very good, by five points. They have a three-touchdown win over K-State. That's a halfway decent win. They're 6-4. and four. Then they won in that wild shootout that I was at at Texas Tech. Well, we know Texas Tech is awful. They're 4-7. and seven. They won on the road in a relatively close game at Iowa State. They're 3-8. and eight. They beat Baylor. Well, Baylor's falling apart. They're 6-4. and four. They have one win that I think is actually very good, and that was the one they just had, and that was at West Virginia. And a game where they gave up over 300 yards to a running back. Well— I'm a little bit. I'm still a little skeptical of Oklahoma. I actually had them in my new top ten, tenth. Uh, I mean, after I give you that, do you feel a little differently after you know it was easily them over over Houston? No, I have Oklahoma though behind eight and three USC. I have USC ninth, and I have Oklahoma. I know. I'm 10th. just talking about Houston though. I'm like you know how we both did the mock playoff committee where you where you kind of evaluate two teams at face value. Right. I'm just looking at Oklahoma right now, and I have Oklahoma in like where I had them, but I'm like rethinking. I think you're taking the say, Travis, who would you bet on? Don't do that to me, man. I think you're doing that. If they played on a neutral field tomorrow, I'm not, I'm actually not doing that at all. Cause I don't give a shit about the neutral field. Cause they've already actually played on a field. Um, so there, there's that. I'm just talking about, I think the big 12 is a better league than the AAC. I, you know, but I think the big 12 is the worst power five this year. And they have not played Oklahoma State yet that I think is the next best team in the league. I'm just looking. If you were to rank the two or three best wins that – because that's what the committee does. They're talking about their best wins. The best wins that they have are at West Virginia. I'll give you that. And then it's probably Baylor who's 6-4. and What are the two best wins? I don't know. Why are you still playing this to me? Are you? Would you redo your top ten and put Houston above Oklahoma? I think I would. Wow. Just because I'm looking at this, I'm like – you know, a lot of these weren't even blowout wins. Again, TCU is an average team this year. Texas, average So team where did you have Oklahoma on Sunday? I had them 10. I had them behind Oklahoma State. Uh, that's fine. I have no problem with that. So you would put Houston 10? Yeah, just— I, I, So I, I just I, want to check some other teams here. I assume you have Colorado above those teams? I do. Penn State? Yes. All right, so then you're okay—USC? I don't. USC has three losses to me. I would have had USC, like— like right behind that. So you're fine with Houston being above USC? Does USC have two wins as good as destroying Louisville? Again, this was to me wasn't even a close game, and they beat Oklahoma by 10. The reason I have USC as high as I do is because they have two wins 
over top 10 teams in Washington and Colorado, and all of their losses were to top 25 caliber foes. You've sold me on having Houston pretty high. Um, I don't know that I could put them in the top 10 with the schedule they played and with the loss to SMU, but I have them pretty high. When I'm looking at the rest of their schedule, it's not great. I'll be honest. I mean, I see some of these teams, you know, Cincinnati is not good this year. Uh, Texas State, no. UConn stinks. Uh, they lost that Navy. I think Navy's pretty good. Tulsa, they beat. Tulsa's not awful. I mean, Tulsa's an eight and three team. UCF is six and five. Again, not very good. Um, you know, it's it's hard to find the third win there, but I will say the third win is probably that, you know, that Tulsa team. And, you know, at Memphis, Memphis is seven and four. I mean, I don't know. I mean, is Tulsa significantly worse right now than Texas Tech? I can't believe that the week of the Ohio State-Michigan number two versus yeah, number sorry, three game. I dragged you down. We've spent road. a good chunk of okay, the podcast let's, now let's abort comparing that part, right, Tulsa to Texas okay. Tech. Sorry. Okay. I mean, on, congratu- on. congratulations moving to Houston. On, on, They're a very good team. Uh, Ohio State-Michigan is this week. Biggest Ohio State-Michigan game since the 1-2 game a decade ago. And I wrote on Monday morning that really, not the hype necessarily, but the seeds for this were planted almost two years ago. I remember being in New Orleans covering the Sugar Bowl, the first year of the playoff. Ohio State was in it. They were about to play Alabama. Obviously, we didn't know they were going to win the game and and go on to win the national championship. And uh, we had a crew there. We had Jenny Taft was there. Clay was there. We were doing TV stuff all week. And uh, we did a little bit of a man. I don't think it ended up running, but we did a man on the street thing where we went over to uh, Cafe Du Monde and we interviewed Ohio State fans who were in line to go in. And we asked them about Jim Harbaugh because Michigan was literally going to introduce Jim Harbaugh the next day. So we wanted their thoughts on him. There was this feeling at the time that it's only a matter of time before we knowing how good a coach he is. It's only a matter of time before he gets them back rolling. And once he does, the Meyer-Harbaugh rivalry could be Woody and Bo all over again. Last year, obviously, Ohio State rolled in that game. You know, it was his first year. Frankly, it was a bit of a overachievement that they even won 10 games. But here we are. They are, at least according to the rankings, basically on equal terms. The only thing that I wish were not the case, I wish it was fully healthy Wilton Spate, no question that he was going to play in the game. Because then this would be, you know, probably considered a kind of a toss-up game, as it is Ohio State is now a touchdown favorite. Do you think that's too much? I do think it's too much. I was picking Michigan all along. Now, that was when their quarterback play was a question mark before the season. But then, you know, I felt more confident as I saw Wilton Spate play pretty well uh, throughout the year. And I I do really like their group of receivers and and Jake Butt, their tight end. I think the running game, Devian Smith, has come on. Um, You know, when I look at Ohio State on the other side of it, I think it's been kind of underwhelming passing game from them. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, they, they they lit up for those two games, the 262-3 to three wins, and then they go to Michigan State. And look, I, you know me, I feel like if you went on the road, you went on the road. I'm not going to dock you style points, but it certainly was concerning that JT Barrett, he was missing easy throws. Uh, it was not, he was not under heavy pressure necessarily. You know, their passing game took a big step backward. And now you're going and playing uh, a Michigan defense that's the number one rated defense in the country. I think it's going to be, because obviously Ohio State's got a great defense as well, I think it's going to be a possibly like the LSU-Alabama game, just a real uh, hard-to-move-the-ball, low-scoring game that frankly could get decided on a pick-six or a fumble return or something like that. Uh, game within a game here. 
Who do you think has the better opportunity to leapfrog into at least a trip to New York? JT Barrett, Curtis Samuel, or Jabril Peppers? Uh, without question, Jabril Peppers. You know, people have been waiting on this. He it reminds me of Manti Teo when he was a finalist. That you know, he's got the great story. He plays for the prestigious school. He plays all these different positions, and people are just waiting for him to, you know have a game-sealing interception to beat Ohio State and take them to the Big Ten title game, and all of a sudden you will see him on every Heisman list. In fact, a big debate on the night of the Houston-Louisville game was whether Lamar Jackson was now vulnerable, and I think he is. Even though nobody has really risen up yet, I think uh, Jabril Peppers doing it on that stage, it'll clearly be the most watched game of the season Jalen Hurts going off in the SEC title game, you know, he's vulnerable at this point. How badly would you like to be in Columbus on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon? Yeah, no question. I mean, the the 2006 game was one of the most memorable games I've ever covered. It was not quite as close as 42-39. That was a tack-on touchdown by Michigan. But, I mean, remember, and, and it's sad that this is part of why I remember it, but I landed at the airport on Friday. I don't know when you got in. And... Same. To yeah. the news that Bo Schembechler had passed away. And then I remember seeing the sequence of events, I guess, was got that news, went to the hotel, turned on the TV, and SportsCenter was showing live coverage of Michigan's buses leaving Ann Arbor. And you could, and everybody looked like they were devastated. devastated. Yeah. And then I went over to the stadium when they arrived for their walkthrough. I mean, it was, it was surreal. Uh, and then the games, you know, the next morning comes and, um, you know, I don't think it was a noon game. Am I am I remembering that right? Usually this is a noon Eastern game. I think it was 3.30 because I remember it being dark when it ended. Um, it was a great game, and I even I remember everything about this day to the point where, see if you remember this, me, you, and Pete Thamel ended up at like a Applebee's or a TGI Friday's uh, late, late night, and I was a voter in the AP poll at the time, and you guys convinced me that Michigan should stay number two. I don't remember anything about an Applebee's there, to be honest. Here's what I remember about the game, which was a little odd in that there was a credentialing screw up at Ohio State. And so I had put in for the game early and had no credential when I got there. Fortunately, college game day was there and they had gotten me, they gave me a sideline pass. And I remember, and this is why I think it was a later game, because I remember going to like a champ sporting goods because I had to buy like a thicker jacket or a sweatshirt. Cause I'm like, man, I'm going to be outside in the cold, like all afternoon. It's going to like, this is after the sun goes down. And I remembered that I thought it was a terrific environment to be at. I mean, to me, it just felt like, um, here, I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes when you have an experience like that, when you watch it on TV, it's kind of like, it brings you back to a sweet place in your mind. Like whether it's a Thanksgiving that, you know, like just kind of, it's, it's a good trigger point mentally, I think. I mean, I'm going to enjoy that game, even though it's going to be on at 9 a.m. for us, you know, in, in L.A. But just from the experience of being around, I mean, the players are all different. Coaching staff is all different. Um, for some reason, because the cult of personality of the two guys is not a knock on Lloyd Carr, certainly than Jim Tressel. But there is something about it where it feels um, more like a heavyweight fight because the coaches' personalities are, are bigger. Do you, do you buy that? Absolutely. And, and as I wrote about, you know, this is a big moment for Jim Harbaugh. For Urban Meyer, this is, you know, if they win, great. It's gravy. Like, this team wasn't expected to, to be able to do this with uh, such a young team. If Michigan wins, you know, 
as I pointed out, Jim Harbaugh, as as much acclaim as he gets, I think you and I both consider him to be one of the top three coaches, has actually not yet won any sort of championship at the college level. Now, I don't hold that against him because Stanford, you know, just getting them to the point that he did where they went to a BCS Bowl his last year was a, an absolutely remarkable turnaround of a program. And then he comes to Michigan, who was really mediocre by the time Brady Hoke's uh, tenure ended, and they immediately become a 10-win team, and now this year, you know, still very much alive for a playoff berth. But at some point, after all the satellite camps and the rap video and sleeping sleepovers and tweets, you know, he needs to win something of note. And I went back and looked. This would be Michigan's biggest win since at least, at least 2003, maybe even further back. Here's a trivia question for you. Who was the Michigan quarterback the last time Michigan beat a top five Ohio State team? Uh, John Navarre. Correct. John Navarre. Good memory. It was uh, the year after Ohio State won the national title with Maurice Claret. I was at the game. I, I was too in Ann Arbor. They were both top five. I think they were both 10 and one. And the win- it was a winner take all to the Rose Bowl. Michigan won. And that was the last time Michigan beat Ohio State until uh, 2011 when Fickle was the interim coach. And then they haven't won again since. So you tell me, I feel like all the pressure's on Michigan in this game. Because if they do not win this year, it's just kind of like, well, when's it going to happen? Well, Michigan's an older team, and that would add to it. You know, the, most of their players are, are upperclassmen, whereas Ohio State is still a very young team. Michigan's almost entire lineup is either seniors or um, Jabril Peppers, who will turn pro. Like, this is their window. Well, I wouldn't say entirely like that because it's not like they don't have really talented young players in the program. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I think this is a great opportunity for them. But you know, to think, okay, if Jim Harbaugh doesn't win this year, then he's not going to win at Michigan is kind of no, no, no. I wouldn't say that, but could be a couple years. You know, you never know. I guess you never know how you know, Ohio State's certainly have a lot I mean, of these you could guys have said that pro. last year about Ohio State's team too. I'm just saying. If Michigan wins this game, it is all of the hype, all of the buildup about Harbaugh. This is the definitive moment. They've arrived. It's going to be an equal rivalry going forward. Harbaugh, Meyer, et cetera, et cetera. If Ohio State wins, it's like the, the ultimate uh, thanks for trying kind of moment. Now, again, if, if John O'Corn is the quarterback, I don't give Michigan much of a chance at all of winning. Really? No, I mean, they... Well, let me remind you of one thing, Stu. This scramble that you keep talking gonna, about, like it was I'm the gonna, greatest no, no, play no, in football no, no, history. No, 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 no. I'm going to say three words. I don't even think they're three words. It might be two words. Tyler O'Connor. That's two words. That's a good point. Uh, you, that is certainly a good point, but I think you would also agree that uh, Ohio State's offense was, well, I don't know. I guess you're right. They have been in a bit of a funk off and on at times this year. I mean, that team had Ezekiel Elliott, yeah. and they didn't win. Ezekiel Elliott's a stud. I mean, they had a lot of—I don't know. Okay, you've sold me. Look, the Michigan defense is going to give them a chance to win any game they play, but it was clear against Indiana that the the game plan was to have O'Corn throw as little as possible. And I don't know how you feel about Devion Smith. I think he's a good running back, but I don't think he's a star running back, and I just don't see him going off on that Ohio State defense. You might be right. Here's a uh, an admission from me. Um, and a, a week or so ago, we had a reader when he was talking about Penn State and some of the nuance of the Penn State-Ohio State game. And there's been a, several games this year uh, where I have either the game's gone on or my game's gone on. And if you don't, you know, you can watch highlights and you can read about it. But unless you were like kind of following the back and forth of a game, sometimes you miss it, which I'm saying that to say this. 
I've seen Michigan probably play five times this year. Um, I think like you, I think Devion Smith is a good back. We'll find out in this game if he's a really, really good back. I think the jury's still out on a lot of these guys because you can read a lot into how they did against Indiana or how they did against Iowa or certainly against Penn State. But I think this is the game where you prove just how good you really are. What to you was Michigan's best win of the season? Was it blowing out Penn State? Yeah, you know, I watched the Colorado game. I think I was in the studio for that. And I didn't know Colorado was as good as they had proven to be. I knew they were they were like Michigan. They were an experienced team. But, you know, the Penn State win is going to carry the most weight right yeah. now because cause that was the team Ohio State lost to, and they're, they have a chance to be the Big Ten champs. I guess that would – that would be it. Penn no? State fans always bring up the fact that they had seven linebackers injured in that game and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I, I'm saying that Michigan has had a lot of uh, blowout wins over mediocre to bad Big Ten teams. This this is a prove-it moment to me. Ohio State, they've proven it to me. You know, they're a really good team. This is Michigan prove-it moment, and it's going to be tough because if Wilton Spade plays and he's healthy, great. I think it's an even matchup. Uh, but remember— you know, when you've talked about it before, what is the biggest offensive strength for Michigan? Those receivers. What is Ohio State's best defensive strength? Those cornerbacks and safeties. So I just don't think it's realistic that those guys are going to go off in this game. Like I said, it could be a 17 to 10 kind of game, mm. maybe even lower. I just yeah. I don't think you're going to see a lot of big plays in this game. So how much will you read into the fact of Jim Harbaugh's reputation as a big game coach based on this? You're saying if he wins the game. If he loses, whatever. Uh, Is this a referendum on Jim Harbaugh on the big stage? I wouldn't say it's a referendum, but I do think that to this point, we haven't seen that. You know, because he hasn't had that opportunity, frankly. You know, His biggest wins are all Pete Carroll related, I feel like, in college. They're not all Pete Carroll, but they crushed Virginia Tech. They crushed Virginia Tech in the Orange Bowl. Bowl. That was a big one. Um, you know, last year's Michigan team basically went 10 and 3 by holding serve. I guess you could say they blew out the SEC East champ in the bowl game, but it was also a, a very uh, hollow SEC East champ. Uh so yeah, I think this, that's what I'm saying, you know. Nobody's going to downgrade Urban Meyer if he loses this game. He's got three national championships. No, nothing will change about his reputation based on this game. Jim Harbaugh, I mean there was a lot of people, especially in the south, who are sick of that guy and if he loses and especially loses big, um, he's going to hear about it. So that's where we are. Uh, playoff implications, I think we'll talk about that ad nauseum down the road, but you know what they are. Michigan wins, wins the Big Ten. They're going to playoff. And I do believe, and uh, Heather Dinich, ESPN's playoff expert, perhaps the only person in the media who follows this stuff even closer than I, uh, she and I are, have differing opinions on this. She is your doppelganger, isn't she? Is that possible? I don't think you used that term. I'm sure there is a term to describe it, but I don't think it's that. We'll call you doppelganger. I don't know that we could be doppelgangers. But anyway, I saw her go on Sports Center Saturday night and say that she could not see them putting Ohio State in over Penn State uh, because of the head-to-head in the championship. And I see it the exact opposite. If Ohio State wins this game, and is 11-1 and one with wins over Oklahoma, who's in the top 10, Wisconsin, who's in the top 10, Michigan, who is I'm third in the country this week, and Nebraska, who's in the top 20, which you think is, like, no different than SMU. And then their only loss is on the road, close game, blocked field goal at another top 10 team. They are in the playoff. I guess unless, of course, Penn State loses to Michigan State, then they have to win another game. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I think that 
I'd be kind of stunned if Penn State went ahead of Ohio State. I don't see it happening. That doesn't mean they can't both be in there, but... What was Heather's rationale on this, by the way? Look, we've seen it two years in a row. We know how much they value conference championships. We know head-to-head is a factor. That's her rationale, and I understand it. There was always going to be a moment, whether it was last year, this year, at some point, where they had an example of a team that is so strong in its resume that it trumps all that. And those things are tiebreakers. And in fact, I would point to two years ago, Baylor and TCU had almost identical resumes. And it took until, you know, they had basically played 10 of the 12 same teams. And it took until the very last week for them to finally use the head-to-head of Baylor beating TCU. Jeff Long just kept saying before that, their resumes aren't close enough to use it as a tiebreaker. And to me, that's the same situation here. Uh, Ohio State's resume would clearly be uh, with a win over Michigan, uh, far above Penn State's. Let me ask you this, and I don't, I don't think you can give me a definitive, but I'm just curious for your take on it. Uh, to me, Baylor and TCU both fit in the category of upstarts. You know, they were both upstart programs in the Big 12 and on the national landscape. Obviously, we know Penn State, you know, had a, you know, very proud tr- history for years, but they have not been anywhere near that for the last decade, whereas Ohio State... We just won a title a year and a half ago or almost two years ago, and they were really good last year, and people had a lot of expectations in there. How much, because I feel like there is a, this definitely factors in, I just don't know how much, even if they'd say it wouldn't, is the feeling, you can call it an eyeball test or whatever, the feeling of Ohio State on a neutral field is really good, and Penn State, man, they, you know, sometimes people devalue the impact of like turnovers and blocked kicks which is, you know, the had a block kick that was a big influence in Penn State. Now, I know Penn State fans will tell you they weren't at full strength when they played that game either, but how much do you think it'll play in some committee members' minds, ooh, man, we think Ohio State is really talented, and Penn State, we're not sure how talented they are. Um, you know, I think two years ago, a lot of people on that committee thought that regardless of the head-to-head result, TCU was a better team than Baylor. I happen to think that was the case, too. It was a game that was decided on a field goal, And so many people, yeah, may feel like Ohio State's still a better team than Penn State, but I I don't want to take away from that win. They beat them fair and square. What I would say is it's a different story to me. Like we talked about Ohio State and Oklahoma. It's a different story to me if the head-to-head result is the road team going in and beating the home team. uh, Then I don't think you can discount it at all. But it's uh, this was a... Remember, Ohio State had played an overtime game at Wisconsin and a night game the night the week before. They get back at 5 in the morning. Then they got to turn around and play another night game at State College. Tough, tough place to play. And I just don't think that that is the end-all, be-all, the fact that they lost that game on a blocked field goal. Um, but if they had the same resumes, then yes, I would say absolutely. Penn State, give it to them. But Ohio State, we just rattled off all the big wins there. Penn State, that Ohio State win is their only top 25 win to this point. Obviously, they would add a second against presumably Wisconsin or Nebraska, who you still think is uh, basically the equivalent of Oregon State, but is in fact still alive for the Big Ten West. Um, They'd add another top 25 win there. Yeah, I I think that's a fair enough assessment. Bruce, here's a question for you. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? Many times, actually. Yeah, how awful was that, even if you found it in five minutes? Because if you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that, too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be 
the beginning of a disaster financially, emotionally, even physically, that could take years to unwind. So do you know how you help protect yourself, Bruce? You know what I do? Because we have this great sponsor that has come on board for the Audible, and I think you could tell them more about it, Stu. It's Identity Guard, a loyal sponsor of the Audible. With Identity Guard, you can get protection from a company that's been in this business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at identityguard.com slash podcast. That's identityguard.com slash podcast. So what we want to do now, because we're not going to be able to do a second podcast, we want to get some of your emails. Rob Stone, what do you got for us? It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. All right, this is going to be an abbreviated mailbag, Bruce. Our first one uh, this is going to invoke one of your absolute favorite people. Uh, Mike McKenzie says, Your colleague Clay Travis has tweeted that Tennessee possibly going to the Sugar Bowl is, quote, better than winning the East like Florida and probably losing to Bama and playing in a lesser bowl. Agree? Say that one more time. Okay, so Clay tweeted the other day that Florida, you know, he's a big Tennessee fan. Let's make sure we point that out. So Florida has won the East, and that was Tennessee's whole goal this year. They blew it. But he seems to think that if Tennessee had won the East, they would go and they would lose by 30 to Alabama. And frankly, given that the fact they gave up 750 yards to Missouri is probably realistic. He's saying it actually is better for Tennessee to not play in that game, avoid the embarrassing loss, let Florida take that embarrassing loss. Tennessee goes to the Sugar Bowl. Florida goes to the Outback Bowl. Yeah, I, I would. I guess I would agree with that. I mean, that's going way down the rabbit hole. I, but I would probably, I would probably agree with that. Tennessee's in pretty good shape. Too. I think the only way they wouldn't go to the Sugar Bowl if they beat Vandy. They better beat Vandy. I mean, there's no given. I mean, Vandy plays good defense. Tennessee's banged Vandy up. Vandy just beat Ole Miss by three touchdowns. Yeah, and I'm curious how much like you know everybody was celebrating Senior Day and everything, and it would mean the season for Vandy to pull that upset. So I agree with him only if we are just assuming that you're going to get blown out in that game. Obviously, the goal is to win the SEC championship. And in fact, in the SEC, the SEC championship game is the Sugar Bowl. It's bigger than the Sugar Bowl. So theoretically, you would say you're crazy. But because we're assuming that they're going to get blown out um, and that it's then going to cause them to go to a worse bowl, I think he may actually be right. Corey from Alabama. I want to start a movement to change the name of Coach of the Year trophies. It should be called Coach Who Overachieved the Most Award. I've always found it comical how preseason expectations basically decide the award, and those expectations are mostly made up by people outside of the actual football programs themselves. I think he's got a great point. I think that we basically decide these things based on who exceeds our expectations the most, and our expectations of picking such and such to be a bad team or a good team are based on number of returning starters record last year if you were fortunate enough to go see a practice maybe that informs you a little bit but we set the expectations and then these guys get rewarded you know in some cases rewarded in some cases fired by whether or not they meet those expectations realistic or not 
Okay. Um, I think there's definitely some merit to what he said. Off the top of your head, give me your three or four people who you think should be in your National Coach of the Year rankings. The runaway National Coach of the Year favorite right now is a guy who exceeded expectations, Mike McIntyre, Colorado. But what I would say in that case is that's not just that's not really about exceeding expectations. That's about just how bad that program was and that he is now the coach that's going to take them to they're one win away from being in the Pac-12 championship game with a chance to go to the Rose Bowl. I mean, if that's not coach of the year, I don't know what is. Agree. I do think that there's a I would put a caveat if it's a team that overcomes a ton of injuries, I would add to that. You know, I don't think that's about expectations. I think that's something that's a serious thing to overcome. Here's a name that I think should be in, should get some consideration. There's actually two guys. They're both in the Big Ten, and I'm sorry. I know, like, you know, they're not the glamour guys. But one is Paul Christ. Their schedule was brutal, and he handled it. And I give his defensive coordinator there, Justin Wilcox, did a lot better job first than a lot of other people thought. The other one is James Franklin. I know people don't like him. But they beat Ohio State. They, uh, they're they 9-2. A lot of people were trying to say he was on the hot seat and going to be pushed out of there. Nobody thought Penn State was going to have a chance to win 10 games this year. Nobody. So to his point, I think the point he's trying to make here, under what circumstances would you give uh, a Nick Saban or an Urban Meyer or Jim Harbaugh National Coach of the Year? You know, of the three, now it's easy to say this because they're the only one that's undefeated. But Nick Saban's the one with the freshman, true freshman quarterback. They're the one who, who basically dominated. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Urban Meyer, but Urban Meyer lost to James Franklin. I'm sorry. There's no way Ohio State's players aren't significantly better than Penn State's. Right. So his point is it shouldn't just be whoever overachieved the most, that the guys who actually do, whether resources or not, if it is very hard to do what Nick Saban has done. The best example of this, and I don't know if he's a – well, it's Corey from Alabama, so he's clearly he's probably stumping for Saban. But you know that no Ohio State coach has won Big Ten Coach of the Year since 1979? Yeah, I do know that because that's come up several times. Trestle never won it. Urban Meyer's yet to win it. I think it's possible Urban Meyer would win it this year. If No. I mean, would you put him over James Franklin this year or over Chris? Uh, I think he has to beat Michigan, and I actually think Franklin would then have to lose so that they win the Big Ten. I don't want to diminish what Urban Meyer's done, because Urban Meyer had six returning starters. That's what I'm saying. I, I think young. that's a pretty but remarkable also coaching job. incredibly guy. talented. Right. Um, but who got the talent? Who, who oh, recruited that talent? I think that's part of it, yeah. So I think that's part of I, it. I definitely see his point, but I think this year— Penn State is also extremely young. Penn State has less seniors, technically, than Ohio State does, quite a few less. I actually see the argument for Paul Chris before I see the argument for James Franklin because they played a, a schedule that we both thought before the season was just going to be impossible for them to navigate. And they are one win away from being in the Big Ten title game, a chance to win the Big Ten and be 11-2 and two, when I would say most people thought, oh, looked at that schedule and said, oh, they're going to go 6-6, six and 7-5. Six, and five. I would agree with you. Um, I just, again, I don't think anybody had... Ohio or Penn State winning 10 games in the toughest division in college football. Tough argument. We'll see who wins Big Ten Coach of the Year. It'll probably not be Urban Meyer. Matthew Ryan, can Baylor pull off the 6-0 and start followed by 0-6 finish, or is Texas Tech just too terrible? I'll give you a, uh, a plug here. You were the one who said Baylor would go, what, 6-6? Six and six? Yes, and it looks like it's very much in play. And for all the same exact reason I said before the season, I thought— with all the instability, 
they might start off okay, but as soon as they hit their first patch of adversity, it was going to go south. Now, I could not have predicted that Seth Russell would get lost for the season, and that's obviously a factor here. Nobody's talking about, because it's so kind of off the radar, but Texas Tech went to Iowa State, who was 2-8, and eight, and lost 66-10. to 10. What on earth are you doing, Cliff Kingsbury? Yeah, it's a, you know, I've seen Texas Tech five times in the last two years. Um, and first of all, Pat Mahomes and, and the offense was short-circuited by Iowa State. I did not see that coming at all. But just, I think Iowa State actually is, it has, some, has some talent on offense. You know, they have a terrific receiver in Alan Lazard. Jacob Park, who was at Georgia, has definitely got some ability. And, and Joel Lanning's a tough other quarterback who can run. They have a couple of good running backs. Having said all that, to lose that game probably isn't a shock. To get blown off the field the way, it was like... It was midway through the second quarter, and Iowa State was already up 42-3. to So you're right. I mean, I think Iowa State's better than their record, and I think if they had won 34-30, uh, to You'd say, oof, tough loss, but you wouldn't. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Is Kingsbury in trouble? Before last week, I would have said no, because I think Kirby Hokut is very committed to him and everything. After that, I'm not so sure. I don't know one way or the other, to be honest. But I don't know what the next move, if you remove Cliff Kingsbury, is. Who do you get to come? I mean, do you turn around and go to SMU and say to Chad Morris? Because Chad Morris finished in second for that job. Uh, the last time. Do you turn around to go to SMU and say, hey, Chad Morris, would you want to come to Lubbock? I don't know. Like, what, what do you, Who do you think they would consider hiring in Lubbock, Texas? Now, if, if it didn't work out with Cliff Kingsbury, because at that case, you're not going to go hire some hot coordinator, some Lincoln Riley or some guy with Texas Tech. Well, the guy who would make the most sense and who Coach Wanstead swears will be the next coach of Texas Tech, but I think it would be an awfully hard sell right now is Sonny Dykes. Yeah, I mean, that's another one to consider. Obviously, his, co- his dad was a coach there. I like Sonny, but I, I'm almost wondering if Sonny's a hard sell for, you know, for, you know, I thought he would have been in the mix at Baylor. I'm not sure because, you know, they've had an okay year, but it's not been the kind of year where you're going to get people that fired up about. Cal has had an okay year? Well, relative to expectations, you lose the first pick in the draft, you lose six receivers. Are you I mean, aware of their, are you aware that they're four and seven? Uh, yes. So I figured if they go, who do they have left? UCLA, they could win that one. So they go five and seven. I mean, no, it's not a good year. I shouldn't say I think it would be awfully hard to fire the former star quarterback and then introduce the son of a revered coach or not, a guy who's coming off five and seven. But, uh, you know, it's it's bad. I mean, a lot of people, it's very divided there right now. He certainly still has his supporters. But there's people who say, you know, it's four years in now. You're out of rebuilding phase. And this would be this is their second losing season in three years. If they do lose to Baylor, it'll be their second four and eight season in three years that's tough all right we want to end with this you mentioned earlier you know how badly would you want to be at the ohio state michigan game i'd love to be at the ohio state michigan game but saturday is a very important day for us at fox uh end of night saturday night you and i and and a whole bunch of other guys tim brando will be there joel clatt will be there shannon spake will be there um coach liner i'm probably forgetting somebody uh, robert smith uh, obviously all the people that are there on saturdays anyway we get in a room and we tape a one-hour playoff committee show, the college football playoff selection committee show, where we are the selection committee. And we pick our four teams, and we debate it. And it runs on Fox, not FS1, Fox, on Sunday, either before or after the NFL game in your market. This is our third year doing it. It is a lot of fun. So this is the first time you're going to get Tim Brando unchained 
you know, like Brando's been doing play-by-play where in theory he's supposed to be sticking to the games he's doing. Now you're getting Tim fully on camera. I heard rumblings that Rob Stone gets to throw confetti in his face every time Tim goes off the reservation. Can you confirm or deny that? Well, this weekend I heard Rob and Tim, you know, knocked back a couple in Omaha the other night where they were there for a Creighton basketball game. And I I think there's a little bit of a mutual love fest there. And, uh, you know, I wonder if I'm going to be able to get a word in edgewise or if if Rob is just going to let Tim have the floor for 60 minutes. Well, you know what Tim's motto is, let Tim be Tim. So (laughs) we should also mention that this will be the first time all season that you and I have been in the same place on a Saturday. Uh, we will both be in LA and because of that, and I'm really excited for this, we will finally get to do our audible on Facebook live shows in person. No technical glitches. I would assume not myself, you and Kristen all in one place, all in one yurt together. And we will be coming on earlier because obviously we're going to come on right after the Ohio state Michigan game. And then we're going to come on again after the iron bowl. So be sure to follow CFB on Fox on Facebook so that you can see those because frankly, We're having a lot of fun with those, and I think you, as Audible listeners, would enjoy that show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast version of the Audible, you should subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about it, and send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you next time. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.